The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here, and I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I interview top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. At 40 Strategy, we help provide strategic planning consulting so organizations can realize and achieve their dreams. Daniel, basically what we do is we help companies create strategic plans and measure the right KPIs for success. The crazy part is only about 10% of organizations actually complete two-thirds of their strategic objectives. And I don't know about you, Daniel, but when I heard this for the first time, it surprised me. Did that, does that, did that surprise you when you read that? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know the source, and I'd, I'd have a firmer opinion if I knew it. Uh, but you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't blow my mind having enough experience in the enterprise and seeing how things go about. So it's a sad sad reality there, my good man. It's a sad reality for sure. And so at at Forty Strategy, your success is our passion. That's why organizations call on us to help. Not only do we come up with the strategy, but the proven right practices to make sure it gets done. Harvard research says that if you actually focus on the right KPIs, you can triple your likelihood of success. So if you want more information, go ahead and reach us at right at catch, like catch a ball at 40strategy.com or go to our website at 40strategy.com. Before we introduce our guest, Daniel here, um, we're going to talk about uh, our shout out to Anthony Taylor. Anthony Taylor is a CEO yeah. for SME Strategic uh, Consulting. He is uh, also the host of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. And uh, I thank, I just want to thank Anthony. Anthony and I have known each other for a fair amount of time. He's a great guy up in Canada. And um, he also provided the guest referral. And he has a wonderful podcast. I encourage you to subscribe to that as well. And that leads us to Daniel. So Daniel is uh, the founder and head of research at Emerge Artificial uh, Intelligence Research. Daniel Fagella, Fagella, we got that right, is an internationally recognized speaker on the uh, on the use cases and ROI of artificial intelligence in business. Emerge tracks and maps what's possible and what's working in artificial intelligence in order to help leaders develop winning AI strategies. Emerge's AI opportunity landscape are the industry benchmark of artificial intelligence ROI across sectors. Daniel is regularly called upon by global enterprise and financial security and services, and has spoken for many of the largest and most reputable organizations in the world, including the World Bank, the United Nations, the OECD, and Interpol, and many, many more. And with that, Daniel, it is a pleasure to have you on the Measure Success Podcast. Hey, I'm glad to be here with you, brother. So this is, uh, once again, thank you so much for, for making the time for us. Can you, this is a one of these uh, AI, right, is talked about all the time, and there's such a misunderstanding. But before we go into there, tell uh, tell the audience a little bit more about Emerge and, and what do you do? Sure. So you could think about us like a, a boutique market research firm focused, again, on the, the business return on investment of AI. So sort of like a forester or a gardener. So we're a publisher in this space. We have a very 
popular website with you know a million plus readers in any given year called Emerge.com, E-M-E-R-J. We also have the most popular B2B AI podcast. So it's not for developers. It's not for sci-fi fans. It's, it's actually for business leaders interested in AI strategy. Three million plus downloads over the years. Everybody from head of core machine learning, Facebook, head of AI, HSBC, head of AI, Raytheon have been on the program. Uh, and that's called the AI and Business Podcast, very popular over the years. So we've got our publishing wing. But when it comes to working with companies, we work with really disruptive startups that are looking to break into new industries with cutting edge market research. that will grab attention and kind of uh, start their demand gen engine. And then we work with enterprises to help them figure out high ROI AI strategies and identify use cases that could work. So it might be an insurance organization that's looking for a way to make conversational interfaces come to life in a way that's net positive for the business. It might be a life sciences firm that's deciding on drug development versus clinical trials applications for where they're going to invest their first million. And they normally don't want to reinvent the wheel. They want to know what their competitors are doing. They want to know what the leading companies in the world are doing. And they want to know where the trends are headed. And so we serve those disruptors and we serve those enterprise leaders. And that's what we do. All right. So the uh, what multi-billion dollar question, what is AI really? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, uh, in common parlance in the business world today, and I think this is probably a good thing, um, AI and machine learning are sort of conflated into a single term. And that's okay. Um, I think most of the time when people get really uppity about that, it is sort of an intentional snootiness that doesn't actually contribute to any sort of meaningful business outcome. Today, when you say AI, practically speaking, you're referring to normally machine learning in some way, shape, or form. ML is kind of the cutting edge, the cool stuff. It's, it's not pre-trained, if this, then that, Kind of systems. It, these are the systems that you know everybody's heard about and seen, you know, tweets about and whatnot that can you know, drink in data about cancerous and non-cancerous tumors, about fraudulent and non-fraudulent payments, and sort of make predictions and projections based on that data. So practically, AI means that. The simple definition of this, we actually have an article on Emerge called "What Is Artificial Intelligence?" Emerj. If you type that into Google, you can find it. Um, the the really roughshod definition is uh, a computer doing something that normally we would require a human being to do. Um, so if it's make a decision, make a distinction that, you know, uh, historically we've required a human being to do, but, but now we have a, a computer doing it. Functionally, that's, that's AI. And normally, for the sake of a business leader conversation, if you're not the one writing the Python, it's a good enough damn definition. I love that. I love that. And, and I appreciate you curating that simplicity around things because I, I have had that same conversation like, no, no, that's machine learning versus AI. And, and people get all caught up in the respective definitions. Not a, it's not a bad thing to understand what ML is conceptually and how it's different from you know 1980s AI. Um, but to get hung up on it is, is often somewhat counterproductive. We need to understand conceptually how the tech works, and, and then we need to figure out how to turn it into value. Um, and we can let somebody else handle the linear algebra generally. We don't, we don't really service the crowd that you know, writes Python code. We service the people that are marshalling budgets. and like that are, that are, We service the people that run departments that have people writing Python code. Um, and those people really shouldn't probably get too bogged down in what uh, reinforcement learning means, especially kind of like on week one of learning what AI is. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm kind of curious uh, if I could extend this a little bit further, I, I've yep. got to imagine you have to sell this from time to time to a board for a company, right? Or, or to a leading organization. And they're like, why, why should we head in this direction? Like, they, like there's this, I almost feel like this, well, we have to do it, but they don't really understand why they're truly doing it. This is, yeah, this is really painful. So um, look, a few things. Number one, we don't cheerlead for AI. In fact, I'm probably better known for shooting down 
AI ideas than I am for rah, rah, shish, boom, buying artificial intelligence as a concept. Um, anybody who's read a single lick of our work or listened to a single podcast will know that we do more battering down of nonsense uh, than we do of, of rah, rah, shish, boom, buying. Um, so when we're brought in, uh, if it's a you know keynote workshop, what have you, it isn't, hey, bucko, tell me why I should do AI, because that, that ain't my job. Um, it, it's, it's uh, here's kind of what we're deciding on the directions we're going in. And my job will, will be sometimes, hey, here's a whole class of use cases and capabilities that are so wholly unrealistic based on where your data infrastructure is and your internal teams are, that, that we would be literally insane to actually pour money in that direction. No mm-hmm. reason to do it. Um, here's foundations we need to build first. Maybe here's projects we need to get up to speed or levels of maturity of our data infrastructure that we need, need to work on before we even do AI. So it is a bit of a misconception that whether people bring me in for a keynote at the United Nations or whether it's uh, you know working with a uh, you know a super regional bank or something like that, that it's going to be everybody should do AI. It's it's really sort of what are your goals? Where are you trying to go? And what logically makes sense given given your capabilities? Um, so. I guess that's a level set for you is I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a cheerleader for this technology. We, we would advocate that people invest intelligently, um, but, but we would not advocate that people jump into it for its own sake. Are, are you, I'm trying to figure out how to answer your question with that being the case, because again, I'm, I, I don't argue on the side of my client AI, right? I'm not a lawyer to, to, for, for AI, but let me know how you want to reword it, knowing kind of what, what we are here. Well, I'll hear comments sometimes in strategy, right? So that's what we typically, we're helping organizations come up with their strategy and they'll go, well, we need an AI plan. Yeah. And, and so, and I'm, I'm like, well, why, what is your goal? What is your purpose around that? And it's like, well, we need AI because if we don't have AI in the future, we're going to die. It's tough. (laughs) So, so, and, and we had, you know, this question kind of leading into how do you build an AI strategy, but, but how do you deal with that? Once again, this why somebody should really thoughtfully spend the, it's a significant investment to do AI right. And so it actually provides real and relevant information. So how do you get a a board, a company, an organization, a government to go, this is where it makes sense. And and this is where it doesn't, you know, you're kind of hanging off the ledge because like they're already, Hey, we got a million dollar check and we're ready to spend it right now or more on this, on this investment, right? Well, okay. So great point. I'll I'll talk about what an ideal circumstance would look like here. And then I'll talk about what reality looks like in this circumstance. So, um, we have the good fortune of interviewing, you know, the heads of AI at the, you know, slacks and squares and, you know, the, the DECA unicorn companies that are really data first, digital first, kind of this stuff is already baked into their culture, but then also pulling in people from, you know, the Exxon's and the Intel's and the Raytheon's and, whatever else, where this is a bit of a sea change from whenever they were founded, you know, uh, in, in the case of, you know, an HSBC, you know, a quarter of a millennium ago or something like that, right? Um, so uh, th- there's, there's sort of, there's ideals and there's, there's, there's reality uh, when it comes to legacy enterprises um, building AI strategies. The important concept here that's going to string the two together is what we refer to as executive AI fluency. We again, have an article on this, executive AI fluency. If you type that into Google, there is no other article that you'll find other than ours. Simple infographic of what its components are. Basic idea of the components. Um, in order to uh, bring AI to life at a decision-making leadership level, again, getting the tech right is super important. We don't necessarily work with the people who code, but I think that's tremendously important work. One thing I'll tell you, though, is you could pull them all from the best programs in Stanford. If you have them working on unrealistic uh, projects with 
horrible measures of success that are never going to be a fit for the company in the first place. It just doesn't matter if they're all from Carnegie Mellon. It just doesn't matter. And so we focus on that higher level again, strategy. So um, in order to get any value out of AI, we need leadership that understands uh, conceptually what does AI do? So how do algorithms and data kind of work together to make decisions just so we can sniff test is that something AI could even help with, whether it be vision or language or whatever? And that's something literally a few hours of kind of grasping uh, the relative concepts there. We have a ton of resources and curricula on that. Um, it, it's not rocket science to grasp it, it conceptually. Again, it's very deep technically, but as a leader, the conceptual grasp not too hard. Second, um, a representative set of use cases. You don't need to understand every AI use case if you're in banking. You don't need to understand if you're in drug development, literally everything that's, that's going on in um, you know, the most cutting edge e-commerce companies. You don't necessarily have to, but you should know the representative use cases in your industry and potentially in some adjacent sectors, just to have kind of a panoply of what realistically can this stuff do? What are the precedents where it's actually added value? We need to take that conceptual understanding and ground it in, in real examples. And again, you might only need a dozen of those or even eight of those to sort of say, okay, I sort of see where it's making its way into my industry. Um, and then number three is to have some kind of alignment to how those capabilities, how that broad set of unlocking in this paradigm shift of turning data into value, how that broad set of capabilities can tie to our own strategic mandates, can tie to what we're going to turn our company into so that we can win market share. So in an ideal universe, um, the board or the leading execs all have some relatively decent semblance of AI uh, fluency, executive AI fluency, and uh, they come to some shared understanding of the capabilities that they're going to build on over the coming maybe half decade, decade, um, and the initial use cases that'll help them build those capabilities so that they can reach that North Star of this real data-enabled market-dominating company. Right? This, is, this is what we could call an ideal circumstance. So this is like Plato's utopia. You know, this, is, this is sort of what that would look like. Um, then there's sort of like the world. So we'll talk about what the actual world looks like. So the, in the actual world, um, some uh, maybe it's an innovation leader, strategy leader, functional business leader in compliance or logistics or whatever, will become pretty AI fluent and will be pretty lonely because there's not that many people around him, subject matter experts or, or side-to-side peers in terms of other you know, VPs or directors um, who sort of gets it at the same level. And this person will uh, kind of wriggle around enough to, to kind of get some budget and push forward on an AI project, often kind of to further their own career. Nothing inherently wrong with that, but um, that, that's kind of how they get it through the door. And they often sell this project not based on, hey, boss, here's a set of capability layers that we need to develop in order to turn into the kind of company we want to turn into. But hey, b- boss, here's a plug and play tool we can jack into the side of this business and get this cool ROI. Can I have some budget? So we treat it like it's IT. And what happens mm-hmm. when we treat it like it's IT is nobody learns um, because we're not treating it as if this is a new kind of iteration. And really, AI is much more like R&D than it is like IT. Everybody listening in should remember that. AI is much more like R&D than it is IT. We need to sometimes really do some tough wrangling of our own internal data. We need to take some pretty rough swings at if there's any gosh darn value in this stuff in the first place to detect fraud, to recommend products, whatever it is that we're doing. Um, and, and, and we've got to do uh, a, a lot of fighting to eventually turn that into a deployment. That's not to say it's not worth it. It just means we are building a new capability. We're investing in a new kind of maturity. We're not just plugging in a system. So normally we plug in a couple systems. We have a couple failed pilots and you know, the, the enthusiasm for AI goes down. At some point, leadership says we need to get a little bit of a better idea of this. And then at some point, they start to pay a little bit more attention as to what projects are getting picked. 
and people start having a little bit more of a conversation around the actual strategic and capability side of AI instead of treating it like a tool. But what I will tell you right now is even in most legacy enterprises, and I think it'll be the same case, you know, it'll be this, it'll be this way for another two to three years. Um, at the highest level, actual fluency of an AI strategy is just not even remotely understood. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, so it's it's real rough. I, I you know eighty percent of firms even in you know North America I, I would estimate are uh, really void of fluency altogether. So there's the ideal circumstance. There's the way it happens in the real world, um, and you know that there's certainly practical advice I'm happy to give. But um, the state of affairs is, is not a great one for how well uh, AI is aligned with strategy. And, and so let, let's talk about the the SMEs of the world, the small to medium sized enterprises. Yes. And and there's two different kinds. You you mentioned there's the, the the unicorns, if you may. You know, I mean that that have a have a venture backed plan, right, to go to a billion dollars within a short period of time, right? Some SaaS driven company, and they're trying to disrupt the market. And then and then your there's your great company that's perhaps a regional driven player, um, but no real plans, if that makes sense, to conquer yep. the world. That's fine. How small, and I know there's a tough question to ask. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to answer. How small, you know, is too small for an organization to think about getting into a true AI strategy? Really good question. I'm glad that you didn't frame it as if they all should. Like, how, how can two-person companies adopt cutting-edge deep learning? Like, like uh, I will slap those questions down um, very, very harshly. Um, but yes, no, you're asking the right question. And I think, in fact, there's a lot of SMB leaders who are sort of haunted by this notion that everybody around them is doing AI at this high level and they're kind of like behind, when in fact, really, again, even legacy enterprises, they're just running little popcorn projects based on excited and enthusiastic leaders that are trying to advance their careers. They're not even pulling this stuff together in any coherent strategy for the most part. And again, you have the squares, you have the slacks, you have the sales forces, you have other companies that will interview that get it all the way and, and aligns relatively well to the top and seem to have a coherent vision there. Um, but here's the general rule. Um, if companies, even one or two orders of magnitude larger than you, if you're a normal SMB, again, you're not venture backed, you're not uh, you know, entirely digital and data first. That's not, the, that's not what's predicating your entire business model, right? That's a very different ecosystem than you know, what you and I are talking about is a chain of shoe stores in the Midwest, right? Or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a guy who owns a dozen gas stations or something like that. Right, right. Um, the idea is this. If the people one or two orders of magnitude larger than you, um, if you have really no evidence whatsoever via kind of sniff tests and a little bit of secondary research, that there's even the remotest semblance of traction of AI in those folks that are one or two orders of magnitude higher than you, then probably you should let your antennae stop zinging and being occupied with AI and go ahead and focus on your bottom line and focus on growth and focus on just having a good digital foundation. Get off of the yellow pads, uh, you know, get off of Excel sheets, you know, le level up your BI, level up your tooling, um, you know, give yourself a, a better soil to eventually grow AI and, and leverage your data, you know, move, move yourself into a more digitally nimble position and move yourself into a, a faster growing, higher margin position, just smart business advice altogether. And then by the time AI tools become accessible for smaller firms, because they will over time, Carl, they're, they're going to get more and more accessible for smaller terms over the, the coming, let's say, five years in marketing and sales and uh, customer service. It's going to trickle its way down, but it's not there yet. Um, again, if you're one or two orders of magnitude, there's crickets in terms of evidence of actual traction, real deal traction in, in AI, um, then you really should be focusing on those two things and not on adopting AI. 
if you are a leading organization, you work at a global or let's say North American top 10 company in a major industry, pharma, banking, et cetera. Now you don't really have a choice. Again, mm. I'm not a rah-rah shish boom bah, you're going to invest in AI wherever it is. No, I'm just saying if you're at that level, the people hunting you down and trying to end you are so big, so powerful, and actually do have R&D budgets that you, you do need to start to align a strategic picture and begin investing in this capability um, pretty much off the cuff. But it's really only for that echelon that thoughtlessly, Carl, I can say, you better damn well be doing something. Mm. Almost mm. nobody else can I thoughtlessly say that. But if you're global or North American top 10 in a major industry, I can basically say, I don't even need to see your balance sheets. I don't need to see much else. I just say, if you were to show it to me, I would be asking where we're experimenting with this stuff. But, but SMB, hopefully that's a good rule of thumb, Carl. Let me know if that makes sense. No, I think that's very logical what you said there. And, and I hope it actually gives some of the listeners out there that have a small to medium-sized business to, to relax. Um, that's it. Yeah. You know, just, just relax. Yeah, just relax because it, it's, this is not impacting. I think the one thing why strategy makes sense for the, well, let me clarify. I believe in strategy, of course, for, for everyone, but when the Ooh, AI part of the strategy, you know, getting that component into it is when one of these bigger players is attacking them directly and them being aware of what their strengths are to protect their turf versus what's being attacked because of new data is now getting information to help bring them to the, to the larger beast. But then they, all the more important is that focus on what their strengths is because they're never going to have the R&D budget to match the big players, right? Yeah. So they have to really realize where their true secret sauce is and they're never going to put the investment to match their AI compared to what, you know, the Exxons, the mobile, the HSBCs. I loved it, by the way, the quarter of a millennium. I think the, the only time I've ever heard that coined phrase. So uh, Daniel, nice, nice work on, on saying that comment. But, um, but you know, do you agree with that to some extent? Is that- I, I do, I do. Yeah. In fact, well, you have a book behind you, Carl. So I'm going to double down on good to great. So yes. Um, yes. It, good to great, Collins has uh, a great chapter on how great companies, um, thought about technology adoption. And in essence, I mean, I won't um, steal words from the man's mouth. He's, uh, you know, his, his book deserves being read uh, unto itself. But um, more or less in paraphrasing, the idea is that the, the companies that really skyrocketed their uh, relative market value over the course of whatever two decades span that Good to Great was, was studying, um, focus not on jumping on every technology trend when it became hot, but focused on really thinking about where their core competencies were, that, that in the coming decade, we're going to hold them ahead of the competition. We're going to genuinely separate them and win market share, win profitability, achieve their business goals. And they, they thoroughly sunk in their heels in technology investments that would forward those core capabilities. And what that does, and, and I can tell you this correlates directly with AI, what that does is it ties to a strategic mandate. We have an article called, um, if, if people type in E-M-E-R-J, lead with strategy in, into Google. There's a whole article kind of about this idea of strategic anchors that we talk about. AI projects that are going to see their way through the inevitable hurdles of bringing AI to life in a legacy enterprise are going to be those that are tied to a strategic anchor. They are locked to a mandate that we are driving towards as a company. We, this is part of our differentiated vision for the future. This is part of one of our core thrusts. This is part of what we're going to become. And AI is part of that investment. It's not a toy that we're throwing into the mix. It is part of how we're going to get to what we're going to be in the future. And if we can get that, and again, that requires some fluency, doesn't it, Carl? I mean, we can't Absolutely. get executives to buy in on that unless they see how AI actually fits in. And again, now we need that broader level of understanding. 
But if we can do that with AI, um, you know, we can make much better investments. And, and to your point, for these small to mid-sized firms that finally get to the place where now AI becomes relevant, you're absolutely right. They shouldn't be jumping on every tech. They don't have the money for it. They've got to be doubling down where it matters. So I've got to give a high five to Mr. Jim Collins um, and, and thank you for highlighting that point because I think everybody needs to hear that. Okay, so there's an AI event. And so how, when you are looking with your clients and, and there is an AI strategy and it's done well, how do you measure success that it actually worked? Yeah, I mean, measuring the success of a strategy can sometimes be challenging. I think, honestly, you might need half a decade to really get the full shake of that. Mm. Um, although there, there are some kind of earshot ideas about, is this thing conceived? Is it ill-conceived or is it well-conceived? Um, mm. there, there are ways to sort of make those distinctions. Um, so I'll talk about that, and then I'll talk about measuring success. And in that sense, I'm going to have to turn to actual AI projects. So mm. for a strategy, in order to kind of gauge its level of ill or well-conceivedness, uh, if those are words, um, uh, we'd, we'd want to get a sense of um, what the existing kind of digital transformation vision of the company is. What is it that we think we're turning into? that's gonna help us better run our operations to be profitable and grow and better service our clients into the future? And does AI fit in as a natural enhancer and kind of supercharger to some of those core capabilities um, or, or does it not? We have a whole article actually called the AI transformation vision, which is about kind of aligning the elements of how data and AI can kind of enhance existing mandate. Um, and if we have a project where AI is kind of this cool extra thing that we've tacked on in the side that's gonna give us some, some bonus side superpower, um, this is generally of the ill-conceived nature. Or sometimes if the buzzwords are just thrown in there, like words like predictive or just kind of wrapped in without necessarily having an understanding of why predictive would be particularly valuable in, in that space or in, or in that area. So again, we'd, we'd want to get a sense of what are we genuinely good at, where are we headed, um, and, and are, our, are our projects and our mandates for investment aligned with those core capabilities that we're already committed to and that we're already seeing evidence are helping us pull, pull ahead of them. So, um, those are rough rules of thumb on a strategy. On projects, um, the answer is there's a little bit of a faster feedback loop with projects. And I would simplify this by thinking about three different kinds of AI ROI. So this is actually one of the more important concepts. So it, in fact, it's, it's probably among the simplest infographics we've ever created. People, go, people type in the three kinds of AI ROI into Google. There's a, you know, a, an infographic. It's so ridiculously simple. It's super easy and memorable. But frankly, I don't think it's talked about nearly enough. Um, and uh, we've crystallized this and we beat this war drum day in and day out because we watch a lot of projects fail. And we, we watch it fail a lot of the time at the level of communication from the onset. Here's the explanation. Three kinds of AI ROI. The first is what we would refer to as measurable ROI. Generally, this is financial. What's it going to cost? What's it going to make me? Sometimes there's other factors such as what are our customer service scores, right? Something like that. So there, there's some needles that are movable that aren't necessarily dollars. Um, but for the most part, we're going to make some dollars. We're, we're going to save some dollars, something along those lines. So our measurable return on investment, very important. I would never advocate to leave out measurable ROI from any kind of AI deployment. This is something we need to consider. We need to have benchmarks that we need to shoot for. They should be realistic. We should talk to data scientists and subject matter experts to make sure that these lofty goals that we have are in any way within the, the, the realm of possibility. But, um, but measurable ROI is a beautiful thing. The problem is when we, we don't communicate AI, the leadership, in any language other than plug and play, here's what you're going to spend, here's what you're going to make. 
the other two lenses that we advocate uh, communicating the, the value of AI through and thinking about investments through are strategic ROI. Strategic ROI is basically answering the question, how much closer does this investment get us to a strategic anchor, to a strategic mandate? So again, that could be a, a key technology thrust that we're already investing in. It could be part of our digital transformation vision that we want to turn into anyway. Um, it could be a three to five year goal that we absolutely are committed to hitting. Does it? How, how much closer does it get, it get us to a strategic anchor that we've already committed to? And, and that should be seen as a kind of ROI unto itself. Um, again, that's what's going to pull tough projects through and allow us to invest in the good to great sense that, that you and I refer to. The third, and in all honesty, um, I, I don't hear anybody uh, talking about this to, 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 the, to the overt degree to which we do. I think a lot of ideas are, are bandied about in, in, uh, in great depth by, by many voices. Um, I think this one, um, frankly, should be talked about much more, particularly in the C-suite where big checks are being cut, and that is capability ROI. Measurable ROI, strategic ROI, capability ROI. What is capability ROI? Essentially, how is this project, our experience and investment in this project, setting us up to succeed with future AI projects and unlock the value of data to help us transform into the future? Let me give you some examples of capability ROI. We're an e-commerce company, and we're going to work on product recommendations. Okay. so. Um, we're going to have to align our, you know, our on-site analytics, our, you know, CRM and purchase behavior of our customers, maybe our email systems to determine who's responding to what kind of promotional messages, whatever the case may be. Um, just in the course of lining up and finding the way to harmonize those different data sets, we now have rich new capabilities for business intelligence and potentially rich new capabilities to unearth more AI uh, 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 sort of use cases into the future. We've now found that we've gotten a deeper, potentially, understanding of our data. Maybe we've learned interesting distinctions about features. We've learned that purchase frequency is a more important facet of, of uh, you know, customer lifetime value than we thought, or whatever the case may be. So what are the retained lessons learned? What are the improvements to our data infra? What are the things that we've learned about how teams work together? One of the really tough things here, Carl, is getting data scientists and subject matter experts to work together to set expectations, to work together to monitor the success and, and uh, iteration of, a, of an AI project. That's challenging. If we can come up with some run books, some playbooks about what we learned about making teams work together productively in terms of a weekly cadence, in terms of check-ins, in terms of how much SME dedicated time we need to contribute to a project, man, those would be awesome rules of thumb that are going to help us move forward. Ultimately, um, early AI projects in the enterprise, if, if done very diligently, are more likely to see capability ROI as the most important return on investment of those projects than they are measurable ROI. That's not me being a pessimist. I'm not saying, yep, just give up on the money and plan on setting yourself a better foundation for future AI. I'm not saying that. I'm saying all three are important. But what I'm getting at is that early projects are going to run into a ton of hurdles. And if you don't learn, then prepare to smash your face against those hurdles a thousand more times. <laughs> and if people, if people don't take capability ROI seriously, if they don't see projects as a conduit to building maturity, then they are absolutely failing and how they are conceiving of AI projects moving forward. And if you are an internal project leader or an outside consultant, and you're communicating through measurable ROI only, wrong move. Not, not doing well by yourself, not setting yourself up to succeed, not doing well by the client. So uh, hopefully that makes sense, Paul. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's excellent. And I, and I love the three different lenses. Who's the best company in the world in AI, in your opinion, today? Oh, geez. I mean, look, the, the idea, best company at AI, I mean, um, this is hard. It's hard to directly, uh, you know, compare firms. I mean, there are obvious answers here. 
and and I, I lived in the Bay Area for two and a half years um, when I was initially selling my previous firm and getting this one off the ground. So been in the headquarters of Facebook and uh, LinkedIn and you know, Baidu's AI lab and you know the rest of that. And, and um, in all frankness, um, the preponderance of really far-reaching, super cutting-edge uh, sort of AI action and traction is, is in you know the Bay Area. Um, so you know the 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 Amazons, the the Googles, uh, uh, the Facebooks of the world are, are even Netflix even um, are are you know killing it in in a great many regards. Uh, Airbnb, etc. Um, but but it's it's not a skill set that's entirely locked and loaded there. I'll give you a slightly broader answer that's maybe less drop dead, stupid, obvious than the one I just gave you, um, which is more around which industries pound for pound are the most permeated with AI. And, and this is a little bit of potentially, I think, a better question than what what company, what individual company. Sure, There's probably sure. some company with 90 people in San Jose right now that is so crystalline in their conception of AI and strategy, so perfect in, in their initial data infrastructure that, you know, I should be lauding them as the highest, but I, I don't know of them well enough to, to understand or know how to compare them. But I think um, a more, you know, potentially useful lens for, for people to look through, um, if you want to look at industries that generally speaking are much more AI fluent and AI enabled, um, online media broadly, fintech broadly, and e-commerce, like pure e-commerce, not brick and mortar to e-commerce, pure e-commerce. Um, those three sectors, pound for pound, if you were to say, what are the industries where if I pluck a random company out, they're most likely to actually have AI in deployment, delivering real value to customers and to the business, um, online media, uh, fintech and, and e-commerce are, are really, really cutting edge. So if you want to watch hot spaces, you want to watch what smart folks are doing in terms of making things predictive, uh, running their operations more efficiently, personalizing their messaging, whatever, um, I would say go ahead and tune in on those, those domains. Where's an example of where a company a well-known company, and then once again, this just help us for because you're in this and you live this day to day, where there's been one of these um, very well-known or perhaps not so well-known why reasons why customer service or support or perhaps even profits have have gone down because of just a major AI disaster, right? Meaning the AI gave them a decision path that ended up making such an impact where it it harmed them actually because their logic was thoughtful, but it got them in the wrong direction. Do you have an example of something like that? You know, um, I, I don't have, I don't have overt examples of this that leap immediately to mind. The, the things that come to mind a little bit more frequently are, are potentially, you know, PR gaffes, mm. um, you know, where, where AI makes some decisions that, you know, put us in a spooky spot. You know, in the banking space, there's obviously a lot of trepidation around uh, implementing artificial intelligence because of things like bias and you know, breaking certain compliance laws. I don't, top of mind, have a single example, though, even in that space where there's a lot of nervousness and a lot of, a lot of money being spent on consultants to figure out how to not step on the bias uh, snake. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't have that many good examples of companies, you know, really sinking there. I'm sure there's some examples in logistics where, you know, some boat steered the wrong way or plane landed the wrong way or, or you know, some, some literal physical disaster um, mm-hmm. ensued. More of the examples, you know, from the big clunky legacy enterprises, I guess maybe a benefit of being big and clunky is you're probably not going to deploy something that's going to radically alter the entirety of your customer experience overnight, right? You, mm-hmm. you probably can't even do that. You can only roll things out small. So, you know, 
so yeah, I, I actually don't have any OMG, we made AI do this and now we're all bankrupt. You know, half our people are laid off now. I, I don't actually have one for you. I can tell you there's companies like a Wells Fargo or an Ally Bank that made oodles of noise about their chatbot for, you know, half a year and then just killed the project, you know, four <laughs> months later. But, you know, um, they got a little egg on their face. Maybe some customers are disappointed. Did their share price go down a heck of a ton? I don't really think so. Um, so, yeah, I don't have any good examples of that, frankly. I mean, if I had a little secondary research time, maybe I'd come up with some, but nothing top of mind. So I'll give you a give you said I w- it was a little bit of a leading. And once again, I want to be careful. I will not name the major airline. Um, but I'm pretty confident one of the largest airlines in the U.S. Uh, world, um, they have been using AI to to change the routes that you've done. Let's say you've, you've booked something in advance and they've changed the routes to a least cost routing. Okay. So, and, and um, as a, as a, once again, I want to be careful to do names, but how do I say this? The, how quickly it comes out without, with it being clearly automated, where it's sending me off routes where I'm going around the United States, as opposed to going direct to where, how I originally did the, the path goes three times longer. It's a little bit of an exaggeration, but like 25% longer. Yeah. Um, it's one of these, for me, it's one of these examples of a great organization is hurting their customer service where to a point where I'm getting ready to change airlines permanently yeah. because of, but there, there to me is one of the small examples of where, where I get the logic that's coming in. They're thinking about how they can maximize their profits to help get me onto a cheaper flight because I put something and I got on a cheap fare. But for myself and my own consumer standpoint, yeah, I booked yeah. that flight for a reason. And don't give me that price if I can't get it. <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. Stuff? Well, look, I mean, in all fairness, from their perspective, mm-hmm. like they have to uh, cater to you as an individual person. And like, if you write angry tweets, they have to reply in a friendly way. But at the end of the day, brother, I'm sure you're well aware that if there's X number of you that are like frowny face, uh, but they make X amount more money than, you know, that there's a certain deal with it factor going on there. Now, of course, they're not going to give you such a such a curt, cold understanding of reality. But of course, you understand that we're operating in reality. So I, I don't I don't really know the actual net impact of that particular use case. Also, routing for flights is like two and a half decades old AI. Like that stuff's been going on since way before ML. It's like like you were I don't know playing arc you were in the arcade or something you know like Pac Man or something like that mm-hmm. uh, when when that when that stuff was kicking off. So that stuff's not wholeheartedly new. So some of the stuff around pricing and, you know, a pretty, you know, the, the, the Expedia's and whatnot are doing some pretty interesting ML stuff. So I, I don't know how new any of that is. Um, nor do I necessarily have evidence to know if this particular AI use case you're talking about has made them or lost them more money or customers. So it's tough for me to judge. It sounds like yeah, your experience wasn't good. So I'm sorry to hear. Yeah. That. Well, I know it's been a little public. Once again, I'll be careful of like saying yeah, too yeah. much about yeah. it, but um, but the fact was, when it was one of those interesting cases of once again, I know the it appears there's a logic that's going behind what's taking place. Um, and and fortunately, I, I'm a frequent flyer for so I can call back up and get back to the old one. That's but, good. That's good. But, you got, but, you got the, a good line there. but the general public who doesn't have the frequent flyers, they're not right. You, you know, they're and experience. exactly. And um, and so as I said, it, it'll be interesting to see. And, and by the way, I think this is a bit new because I've been flying them for decades yeah. and the amount of flights that have been getting changed have not been to this level, which okay. it's been okay. interesting. Interesting. You know what I mean? So anyways, uh, let's, let's move on. We're going to move on. We've got just a few more minutes. Um, cool. Going to ask just one personal one question, the personal success. 
Um, you are obviously really busy, ton of research. Um, you're speaking on a regular basis. How do you keep yourself on a personal level to keep the motivation, the excitement? Um, what are you doing to help drive your success on, on the personal level? Yeah, you know, um, uh, well, I think I think everybody sort of has a certain amount of smoldering white hot something within themselves that I don't know how, like, you know, nature or nurture, I don't know a hundred percent. And those things are, I guess, tougher to quantify, but, you know, um, habit wise, uh, I, I think that one of the things I've, I've learned over the last uh, five years, I think if you talk to 22 year old me, uh, I would have ignored these things wholeheartedly is that, um, you know, a really strong cadence of, uh, uh, proper sleep and food at the right times and, you know, caffeine only at the right times, uh, and, and a good regimen of exercise, um, I think is a great base. So I think that there's all kinds of things psychologically that are important to sort of, you know, being mindful of progress. I think we're all motivated by progress. So being able to keep those dashboards in front of us where, where you can see not only the beautiful end objectives that we want to move towards, you know, those North stars that are really motivating to us personally and professionally, um, but also be able to see the dashboards that are showing how we're moving forward on those. So being able to have those in front of uh, in front of one, I think, are, are important. I know that's important for me, but frankly, I think that stuff all has to sit on top of a base of, you know, uh, you get enough sleep to be functional, um, and you know, you get enough enough uh, uh, exercise during the week to kind of keep your body in the right spot. Um, and I think if you have that, if you if you handle the monkey suit, as I frame it tersely, um, if you handle the monkey suit. Uh, because we have to operate in one. I, I like to pretend maybe I'm not, but ultimately I'm, I'm, I'm in here steering this hominid thing. I got fingernails. I got, I got all kinds of weird monkey stuff. So if you handle the monkey suit, uh, then I think it, it allows you to focus the preponderance of your time on, on the, the great and lofty goal that's exciting and the progress that you're making towards it, which I think both of those things are, are the things that, you know, can really get somebody up in the morning. So uh, I don't know that that's, that's, those are probably the big things for me there, Carl. So there's something specifically in 2021 that you're working on because you're just like, man, yeah. I've not been good with this and yeah. I'm, I'm working on it right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, last year I worked on uh, like a certain amount of servings of vegetables every day as a habit. And now I got that really down pat. I've always been great with exercise. My uh, always been a jujitsu guy and always just mm-hmm. kind of naturally been able to, to pull that off. But frankly, bedtimes and wake times are big deals for me now, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of kind of sleep whenever I'm tired and wake when, whenever I kind of need to, or, you know, or as early as possible, uh, being able to keep a cadence that's a little bit more predictable. So my body can get a little bit more renewing sleep. So that's, that's been a big one for me. I got a little, a little, uh, personal KPIs where I'll put a one or a zero in the box if I'm in bed by 1030 or not. So if I'm not, it's like, oh, I'm putting a zero in there tomorrow. That's going to suck. Uh, so yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's one of the ones I'm working on this year. Good, good for you. Uh, okay, so my love to ask, what is a book or a couple of books that you recommend for our audience? Sure. Um, and, it, you know, I, I guess it all depends on your aims. I think your original framing of this pre-interview was what's your favorite book? Now mm-hmm. I'm, I'm having to think of an entirely different answer. <laughs> uh, Feel free. What's your favorite book? Start with that sure, first. Sure. Uh, my, my favorite book is Plutarch's Lives. So um, Plutarch's a biographer of uh, you know, Greek and Roman statesmen and generals, and uh, happens to, I, I think, be some of the loftiest, um, uh, the, the, the loftiest 
English prose. It's all translated by John Dryden, who was the first poet laureate in England. So it's just gorgeously written. But it's also, I think, a really strong grounding on how character uh, affects the trajectory of a person uh, mm -hmm. with, with lofty aims. How does character affect um, uh, one's sort of influence on others in a leadership perspective? Um, the way one responds to different kinds of stressful situations. And in Plutarch's lives, you read of stressful situations that are vastly beyond Carl. I don't know the entirety of your life, but I would imagine you haven't, you know, uh, had to trudge across Alps while most of your soldiers are dying, you know, living on the bark of trees for like a year and a half. You probably just haven't done that. It's my estimate of you. I don't know you personally. That's fair. Um, I have not done that one yet. <laughs> good to know. So, um, so it's, it's a great grounding in sort of what actual hardship is and sort of a reminder of the, mm -hmm. the sort of the petty softness that is the vast preponderance of, of our own problems. Um, and, and again, also, so it paints a, a great picture of, of uh, dealing with, with challenge in sort of noble and super inspiring ways, but also paints how different character traits, you know, kind of good and ill or sometimes neutral, things that could, could go either way, um, how those rattle their way forth over the course of one's life um, through, through the lives of very prominent people who, who you know, made an important dent in the world. And so um, I've always found that to be one of the most enriching sort of cauldrons that I dip my ladle into time and time again for, uh, you know, for a good, a good pre-bed reading experience. I'll say that. So. Uh, any, so is there any other, that, that was a great one. Any well, other, like one, maybe from quote unquote, more modern book that's out there right now. They're like, you know, you got to read this if you want to learn more about AI to get a basic understanding. Yeah, sure. AI books. Um, honestly, I, I think I spend my time again, like, too much on that. that. The head, the head of AI at you know the chief AI officer at IBM or something. It's like I don't know if I want to write a book or do I want to spend another hour with the guy running AI at Raytheon or something. It's like sort of I'm always always going to go with the latter sort of. Um, but you know if if I were to, uh, you know if if I were to if I were to list resources that I think are pretty strong in that category, um, there's an AI first company book written by one of our guests. Uh, by the name of Ash Fontana, which is a, a pretty good book. It's it's not quite startup oriented. It actually has a lot of transferable lessons to what it looks like to unlock AI advantage even in a larger enterprise. So kind of AI first company, Ash's book, I, I think is, you know, um, at least a worthwhile read. Um, and, and I'm also a huge fan of Good to Great. I, I read it again earlier this year. And, and I think that the, the section on technology is as piercingly relevant uh, exactly now with AI uh, it's probably the best distillation of the attitude people should have with wow. AI. It's like wow. invented it before it before it came around. So I, I I would and I have recommended people dig into the technology chapter of Good to Great. So those would be modern things to dig into. I don't I don't really like reading modern authors, but if if you put a gun to my head here, Carl, I'll give you a couple. I'll bark them out if you if you force me. No, that's good. That's good. You what you did there was perfect. I, I read dead people. I, hey, that's uh, on principle. No, I love and I love the first recommendation that you had. Yeah. How can people learn more about you and your firm? Sure. Uh, so uh, people are generally interested in what we do at Emerge. Again, I mentioned a couple of the resources. I, people could go to Emerge.com and go to the menu, and there's literally thousands of use cases across every industry. So if you want to sign up for the newsletter and you know see all of our latest interviews, I mentioned the caliber of people that we're able to get in touch with on a weekly basis. Um, you know they can they can sign up there. Um, we have a, a resource that's usually most relevant for non-technical folks, and that's sort of how to detect AI AI trends. So if you want to figure out sort of what are the advantages we might unlock in our industry or where might our industry be headed? There's sort of um, secondary research keys that we tune into, which are really simple to understand. It's like a five-page PDF. It's emerj.com slash T3. So that's T like the word trend and then the number three. So emerj.com slash T3. 
And that's three ways to detect AI trends. Again, for, for non-technical leaders that want to um, unlock an advantage, again, not write code, but figure out where could AI have the, the biggest leverage in my business, emerj.com slash T3, I think would probably be a, a good place Perfect. to start. Otherwise, you can find me on social and let me know that Carl sent you and I'll give you a big hello. Awesome. Awesome, Daniel. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time for our audience and to, to be here today and providing your insights on AI and strategy. And um, I think it's really, really excellent uh, education. And to everyone else out there, we just thank you so much for listening to uh, this podcast and wishing you the very best at measuring your success. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.